free people read freely. That is the motto of one of our foundations, which is the Freedom to Read Foundation that really just focuses on the freedom to read. I think people are wearing those t-shirts today. So I think that we have been consistent, we have been visible, and we have been relentless with that message that we believe that access to libraries and access to information and the right to read is foundational to our democracy. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Tracy Hall, Executive Director of the American Library Association, or ALA. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Donna. Thanks for having me. Tracy, tell us about ALA. Well, the American Library Association is the oldest and largest library association in the world with over 50,000 individual members, over 5,000 institutional members, And those members are here in the U.S. and well beyond it. We were founded in 1876 with the goal of enhancing learning and making information access available to all. Tracy, I'm familiar with the library in my city. There's libraries at universities. There's libraries at schools. But you've got libraries in all kinds of settings. So maybe give us a sense of the diversity of your members. So our members work in institutions that include, of course, the academic space. And in fact, one of our subdivisions, we have eight, is the Association of College and Research Libraries, Public Libraries. And one of our subdivisions, our divisions is the Public Library Association, School Libraries. One of our divisions is the American Association of School Librarians, and also work in prison libraries. Oh, federal libraries, special libraries, medical libraries, consortial libraries, archives, you name it. So any type of information setting, you will find representation in our membership ranks, as well as we're also home to divisions that include the Young Adult Library Services Association, the Association of Library Services to Children, the Reference User Services Association, and also United for Libraries, which is uh, for friends of libraries and also for trustees. And so there's just really a wide range, as well as core people who work in leadership or who work in some aspect of management or foundations. Whatever area of service, whatever library type, you're going to have representation within ALA. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize the diversity. I knew about some of them, but not the breadth of libraries. 
Let me tell you a story. So my son just finished up his freshman year at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. And during orientation, we toured the library. But then during Parents Weekend, he specifically said, Mom, I got to show you the library. And he said that with a lot of pride and a lot of excitement. And we walked in and the library at VCU, the main one, doesn't have a lot of books. There's a lot of meeting space. There's a lot of collaboration space. There's a maker space down in the basement. And there are reference librarians there to help you do your research with your writing. So that library was completely transformed in my mind. And he was excited to be in that space. So libraries have changed a lot. I mean, give us a sense of what libraries are becoming. Yeah. So there are multiple laws of librarianship. And five of the laws were created by Ranganathan, who was an information theorist. One of them is that libraries are a living organism. So libraries have to change. They have to change. So the difference between the library and say like a museum to book is that libraries change. And as more information has become digital and online, we don't need the library itself to be a repository of books. In fact, many libraries have more and more of their holdings off-site or in other spaces so that if the material, the physical materials need it, it is there. But I think libraries are continuing to sort of circle back to the original idea of what the library was. And remember, the library comes out of this notion of the Athenaeum, which was a library museum or access to art space and the gymnasium, right? These were things that were seen reading, reflection, access to art, creativity, and also physical recreation and exercise. Those were all considered to be essential to one's development and to one's development, not only into adulthood, but into a type of civic literacy or civic fluency that would encourage civic engagement. And so I think what we're seeing, and your son is evidencing this, right, is that especially when we see college campuses, especially when we see new libraries being built, they often will include maker spaces. They also will include commons where people can work on sometimes group activities or individual things, but in community, right? Yes. They often include opportunities to engage with art. And so I think that physicality, that creativity and learning, all of those things work together. And I'm really happy that he's excited because I think that is what makes libraries so important is that they not only move with the times, but they also to move ahead of our communities to encourage learning and excitement about learning. Wow, that is an amazing description of what libraries are becoming. Thank you. So before we get into the things that ALA is doing to thrive and serve your members, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to become executive director of ALA? Wow. Well, I've always loved libraries and always been an avid user of libraries and reader as well. I came to libraries out of social services. I was directing a homeless shelter for unhoused youth. And I've been very interested in working with unhoused individuals really my entire life because my family experienced housing precarity. And also I grew up in Los Angeles. And so Skid Row and sort of its many satellite spaces across Southern LA, I grew up witnessing, watching, and knowing many people who were unhoused. And so that was always a major concern for me. But there was a through line that I started to see when I, I worked in unhoused services is that many people had very limited 
education and very limited reading ability. And that was something that compounded their homelessness. And I remember wanting to connect those who came to our shelter to the library because I knew the library had GED programs. I knew that they had programs that help people find jobs. And so that was something that when I started to see the library from the point of view of a service site, I really started to think a lot more about working in libraries. And that's sort of what led me to libraries. What led me to the American Library Association, which is the first and only association that I've ever worked in. And this is my second time around at ALA. What led me there is that when I became a librarian, went to library school, got my master's degree. When I became a librarian across the libraries I was working in, I was always setting up outreach programs and programs around digital literacy, early programs on coding in Seattle when the internet still looked like Pong, right? So some of those programs were receiving awards. And I also was a recipient of a scholarship from the American Library Association. So when a position at ALA directing the Office for Diversity was available, I found people at ALA itself were recruiting me and saying that I should apply for the job. And when I did, that began my journey. So a few years ago, when the executive director at that time was getting ready to step down, I was contacted by a search firm that said your name was coming up for this position. And it was just a surprise for me because I'm not one who imagines myself in any role or position. If you were to ask me what my biggest dreams and aspirations are, it's rarely anything about career. It's more about service or things that I want to try to help. But I remember saying, no, I don't think I'm the right candidate. Although I'd had a really successful stint at ALA prior to going out to become assistant dean of a library school. But the second time they came, I found more and more members of the association were saying, you really should put your name in the hat. And the rest is history. I totally didn't expect that I would be in this role. But at the same time, I can think of no better time to do it than a time when we just been through the pandemic. And I started a couple of weeks before the pandemic and the pandemic illustrated for us how reliant we all are on information systems and the internet for access to employment, access to education, access to public health. And then of course, the rise in censorship, all of those things that really come to bear on libraries For the activist in me, the person who is more called by the work and service that needs to be done or delivered, and sometimes high stakes, because I definitely have a part of my personality that I'm really drawn by when the stakes are high. That's the time I'm really interested in being at the table. So it turned out to be a convergence of a lot of different things that brings me here. And I find myself really feeling like I'm in the right place at the right time. What an amazing story. First association and first ED job. Yes, yes, absolutely. I've been number two in a lot of different settings because, of course, my career has also been outside of library. But there's nothing that can prepare you really for an ED role, especially in a big organization. Even if you are number two, you never really know what that's like until you're in that seat. Let's talk about ALA. You talked about censorship, and censorship is all over the website. It's in your advocacy work. You just published the 13 most banned books. How do you navigate this landscape as an association? Because you probably have members on both sides of the aisle, and you're probably right smack in the 
discussions and the arguments and the fights. So how do you navigate that? Yeah, that's a really good question, right? Because nuance is always important. As a strategy, we have to resist the urge to just jump in without evidence, right? So what was really important for me, especially in terms of leading and really having to help design a strategy, knowing that this conversation is increasingly a divisive one, was really understanding what the association had experienced and encountered and what this sort of conversation and debates had been before. So I was able to look in our archives and see what the association was doing during the height of the McCarthy era. Oh, Senator Joseph McCarthy and the Committee on American Activities, which was one of the first, in this case, state-sanctioned book ban campaigns and censorship campaigns in the country and really one that tested our constitutional rights. You know, and of course, Senator McCarthy would be responsible for banning and burning over 30,000 books, bringing authors to witness stands and putting them on trial, if you will, if you think of Langston Hughes and W.B. Du Bois, and of course, all of the books that were considered to be problematic at that time, Robin Hood, right? Because it talked about wealth hoarding, or books by Emerson Whitman, because it talked about a free mind, a Thoreau's, a book on civil disobedience, which had become a primer for the early civil rights movement. And it's funny because you think about the kinds of books that were banned then, books on integration that say we shouldn't segregate, books that really promoted integration. All of those books were being challenged and you see a parallel now, you know, books that talked about diversity and sexual orientation. So I went back and I saw what ALA was doing at the time. And what ALA did, it actually held one of its first congresses on intellectual freedom. And at that congress, which brought together librarians, but other stakeholders as well in the intellectual freedom movement, including the American Publishers Association, it reaffirmed and reinforced that intellectual freedom is at the very foundation of American librarianship and that we can have no librarianship unless we all agree that people are free to read what they will. And there's another law of librarianship. It says every book, it's user and every user, it's book. And so it just reaffirmed those things. So when I read that debate, I said, wait a minute, even in 51 through 53, in the height of the McCarthy era, ALA was meeting in New York and in California, hotbeds for censorship at that time, state-sanctioned censorship under McCarthy. And even then, when politics were not even at the level that they are now in terms of polemics and devices necessarily, they were able to affirm that and to stand up for that. So how much more so must we do that today? And that really emboldened me, sharing that information with my colleagues. We really knew that we could not equivocate about censorship. So then what we were able to do is to work with a polling agency to see what do the American people feel today? Ah. Back then, you know, almost 70 years ago, they were affirming that intellectual freedom is the bedrock of our democracy, what's happening today. And what we found in that poll is that 70% of Democrats and Republicans agree that censorship is egregious and is a violation of our constitutional rights. So with that, with history on our side, And with understanding what's happening with the American public today on our side, it really gave us an opportunity to not just say censorship is wrong, but to launch the first national campaign 
against book bans, which is called Unite Against Book Bans, which is something that, you know, has won some awards and recognition today. So let me ask you a question about that. You probably have some members who do believe that some books should be banned. How do you make room for that voice and that nuanced conversation? And I think this is an interesting question for associations because you've got to welcome people with different opinions and you've got to give them a home and otherwise they create a separate organization and now we're even more divided. Yeah, definitely. When I say yeah, definitely, I would say yes. I think the court of public opinion is wide and varied as it should be. I think the difference is, though, is that we're not talking about individuals. So we're not the American Individual Association. We're the American Library Association. And so what we are affirming is that libraries are in no place to ban books. Because if I ban a book that erases your history and it is your lived experience, it is your voice and how you think about the world, then something different is happening here. I'm really silencing. And we've, you know, when we see information withdrawal, because we talk a lot about the value chain of misinformation and disinformation, but it continues. Misinformation, if I just give you the wrong information, disinformation is if I intend to give you the wrong information, but there's information disparity, information segregation, which we are experiencing sometimes depending on where you live during the pandemic. Everybody's supposed to get online to go to school or do work. And we find some people don't have computers, consistent broadband, or there's been very poor broadband investment in terms of infrastructure. So you can't get online without buffering or something like that. Okay, so that's information segregation or information disparity. But at the end of that chain, the most egregious form is information withdrawal, is when I take away or someone takes away information that exists in the world. And that is what censorship is. And the thing that we have to understand is when that becomes state sanctioned, then that is really the prelude. It's a calling card of totalitarianism. Hmm. So again, individuals have a right to feel the way that they do. But libraries, school libraries, public libraries, academic libraries are in no position to determine, we don't want to read your history. We don't want to read your lived experience. That is something altogether. And that really is extremism. So individuals can say, I don't like this book and I don't want to read it. And even I don't want my child to read it. But no one should be making that decision when it comes to an institution. Love it. That is too violent, too violent a form of information withdrawal. Boy, amazing distinction. Thank you. So President Biden recently made a statement about the work that you're doing and about censorship. So how do you, as an organization, work to get that kind of visibility? Because that's amazing. Yes, we are really, really grateful, first of all, that the White House is speaking out. It's important that the White House is speaking out at this time, especially the focus on censorship has really had a narrow, narrow focus on focusing on works about and by BIPOC writers, Mm -hmm. Black, Indigenous, people of color writers, and LGBTQIA writers. And then in some cases, women writers who might be writing about, you know, women's autonomy or women's political access and those kinds of things. So how do you get a statement from the White House that references you? What kind of lobbying and public affairs effort is that? One is you have to be consistent. Number one, you have to be consistent. We're not new to this. We're true to this. Ah, okay. That's number one. I think two is that they say life hits a moving target. You have to be doing the work. I think our United Against Book Bans campaign, our, you know, ALA is a home or the creator of Ban Books Week to raise awareness of the history of censorship and authors who are banned, who 
always usually are the masterworks of literature. Yes. So, you know, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. You know, I've talked about Thoreau, works by Sherman Alexie and Alice Walker, Ibram Kendi, many, many others. So thinking about that visibility. And then also, I think one of the things that we've done is to just continue to remind people that free people read freely. That is the motto of one of our foundations, which is the Freedom to Read Foundation that really just focuses on the freedom to read. I think people are wearing those T-shirts today. So I think that we have been consistent, we have been visible, and we have been relentless with that message that we believe that access to libraries and access to information and the right to read is foundational to our democracy. And it's important that not only the White House hears that from us, but what we recognize is that the American public increasingly is understanding that and ALA's role in that stewardship. Yeah. And Tracy, I'll be sure to include in the show notes all the different microsites that you've created for these initiatives and the hashtags that you've created, obviously contributing to the visibility of ALA on this topic. Yes. So in addition to censorship and banned books, you've got other issues that you're working on. And one of them is DEI. So what's the DEI nuance here? How and why is it important for libraries? That's really a great question. One thing that we know when we survey and look at who uses libraries. Now, we remember that libraries are the single largest public service point that people in the country use consistently. So before the pandemic, we had about a billion visits to libraries. For public libraries alone, there's more public libraries than McDonald's. Yay. There are over 100,000 school libraries and we need more because we want to make sure that every school has a school library and a librarian. Oftentimes it's just the wealthier schools that have a well-resourced library and a librarian. So that's an equity issue, right? Because we know that A lot of times in school districts that are primarily lower income and primarily black and brown, they're least likely to have a school library or a school librarian in them. So those are some issues there. But one thing that we know is that the people who use libraries overwhelmingly tend to be people who are middle and lower income. And also we know that people of color tend to use the library with more frequency during the week because they're using it for a lot of different reasons. They might be going there for books, for programs. Their kids might be going there after school, but then they also might be going for ESOL classes, for a GED, for an adult literacy program or family literacy program, elder programs. And we know that today, the people who are coming into libraries in this increasingly digital age need some sort of digital navigation support where they really need intensive help in accessing something in a point of time, point of need, but that might be on a digital platform. So I think when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, libraries are just like right there. Everyone needs libraries for information 411. But the people who need libraries for information, what I call 911, like I have to have this information. This is the only place I can go to get it or to get help accessing it tend to be people who have all of those layers of income diversity, age diversity, racial or ethno-linguistic diversity, et cetera. So Tracy, it's clear that the people that the libraries serve are people of every stripe. Yes. What about the membership? Is it as diverse as it should be or could be? No, it isn't. And I think just like with K-12 education, higher education, 
law, medicine, I could go on and on. The professions are not nearly as diverse as they should be. And I'm not even talking about representation. I'm talking about genius because I've done a lot of my work in graduate school and, you know, is really thinking a lot about genius and about to what degree do we really forfeit innovation when we don't have diversity in our ranks. And so the American Library Association recognizes that need and actually in the late 90s, 1998, introduced a spectrum program, which has turned out to be the largest workforce diversity program in the history of librarianship. And I am a beneficiary. I received one of those early scholarships. So I always think that in terms of return on impact, I try to use the platform of the executive director to talk about how important it is that associations really invest in diversity, especially racial diversity and ethno-linguistic diversity, because it brings a richness to the work. But yes, for us, it isn't just a platitude. It's not just a concept. It really is about our commitment to diversity in the workforce and also to ensuring that we are reaching people who usually are underserved or underreached by libraries. So it has to be a part of our overarching strategy and it remains so. And I'm happy to see that, you know, ALA is consistently recognized in the association world. Our Spectrum Scholarship has been replicated by the American Bar Association and other associations have looked at it and used it as a template for some of their own programs. So that's well-documented and well-known, and I'm very proud of ALA for that. You've got related programs, it sounds like, focusing on adult literacy, and you say that broadband should be free. It sounds like this is all wrapped up in this notion that everyone should have access to education. Yes, that's our mission, access to education and access to information. So yes, absolutely, we are really investing very heavily right now in adult literacy because today some of the infrastructure support networks for adult literacy instruction have really eroded really badly. So much so that about only 16% of adults who feel themselves that they need literacy instruction are able to get it because just the pathways into it are not discernible. And you go back and you think about like TV shows like Welcome Back Carter that talked about night school and all those things. It was so common that it was a part of like popular culture. But today, people don't know where to go to continue their education or to get literacy instruction. So we're trying to weave more of that into everyday library services. So that's definitely one goal. And when it comes to universal broadband, we really see that as a public utility in the same way that if you're thirsty in a public space, you get water and nobody's charging you for that, right? Because we understand that access to water, clean water is critical to wellness. And we believe that access to the internet is the same. So you've got an annual conference coming up, June 22nd in Chicago. What can we expect from the ALA's annual conference? And this is a giant affair. Giant. And I have to say to anybody who is listening, you have some professional development funds. I'm not just saying this. I definitely think that ALA's conferences, especially our annual conference, is one of the richest experiences, learning experiences you'll have. Our conference kicks off on the 22nd with sort of a pre-rally, if you will, really around the right to read. And Dr. Ibram X. Candy will be the speaker. On the next day, we open our conference with Judy Bloom. <gasps> yes. And it just keeps going on. We have Matthew Desmond on Saturday. 
the author of Evicted in Poverty by America. Yes. We have the Librarian of Congress. And then we close with Amanda Gorman, who's been in the news for censorship. Oh, yes. And Christian Robinson. Every single day, we have some of the greatest thinkers and authors and change makers that you can imagine. For the price point, which we keep very low, for the price point and for the experience and also for our book, we have this huge book exhibits and expo. So if you are a reader, you're going to be there to get galleys, to meet authors who are reading at booths. It is one of the most extraordinary experiences. And I'm not just saying that because I go to a lot of conferences, but I think the production values, the content, who you get a chance to see here and maybe have your book signed. It's one of the most exciting things that I think anyone could experience. And everyone, whether you're a librarian or you care about education, learning, and some of the things we've talked about today, you should be there for sure. June 22nd is our kickoff. The first day is the 23rd and we end on the 27th. So let me ask you a question. It sounds like you've got some really big names and you've got high production value. You try to keep the conference affordable. So how are you doing that? We have to really, really, really do it carefully. Real careful budgeting. Lots of sponsorships, exhibitors. Yes. What's working? Yes. We have library champions. We have sponsors. Absolutely. So we really work that sponsorship angle because I think our sponsors and our vendors understand that this is the biggest convening of library people, writers, and publishers actually in the United States every year. So what's it like to be a librarian these days? Ah, that's a beautiful question because there's so many answers. You know, I'm out in the field all the time and obviously I am a librarian. I've worked in this field. I came to this role actually from the base of being a practitioner and an educator in this space. This is an exhilarating time and it's a scary time. And it's a time of really, really high stress because, you know, Joanna, we have librarians who are being fired or who are being called out because they are protecting intellectual freedom. There's so much name-calling in that space, especially by radicalized groups, extremist groups, who are really, as I say, making these incursions against our civil rights. I think the other thing is, is that you find a lot of newer career librarians who are really emboldened. We find people going to library school because they see what's happening with libraries and they see libraries on the front line of critical conversations about this nation and they want to be a part of this. So there's a lot of different answers to this, but I would say if you know a librarian, especially in a community where there's been a lot of book challenges and bans, just go to your library and show support because it's often a field that people didn't get into librarianship necessarily to be activists. Ah, yes. In fact, the opposite probably. If you're a librarian now, there's some part of activism that you find yourself having to engage in just to be able to do your work and to keep libraries free and open. Tracy, before we go, how's membership? We were really preparing for a huge slide during the pandemic, just because libraries for the first part of that were closed. But, you know, libraries are these responsive and resilient spaces. And as they began to open again, and it wasn't like a long closure, it was really pre-vaccine to keep everyone safe. But we are finding our membership really on the rebound. And I think, to be really honest, ALA's ability, as we evidence the ability to steward 
libraries and library services and to preserve library services and to support librarians during this time, I think that our membership is responsive to that. And so that's been encouraging. Wow. Tracy, what an amazing interview. Thank you so much for sharing what ALA is doing. Thank you for all the work with the libraries. And again, I think about my son and I think about my friends and how we all value libraries and fascinating to hear about how they're changing and growing. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and continue to tell us about the good work that you're doing and how you're changing. Thank you for this opportunity. And if your son continues that excitement about libraries, have him call me. I will. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.